the legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. So good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of How to Invest in Cannabis. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, one of the founding partners of Key Investment Partners. Today, it is my great pleasure to have Kato Falam here with us, the founder of Loha Capital. Kato, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, Jordan. Thank you very much. I'm uh, happy to be here. Fantastic. So Kato, just to kick things off, would love to um, would love if you would take a, a little bit of time to talk about what Loha Capital is, and then we can kind of uh, dive into your background from, from you know the get go. Absolutely. You know, so Loha Capital Management is uh, is our investment firm that is um, working to provide different kinds of access to alternative investments, more kind of democratized access. And so our first foray into that is in the cannabis space and building uh, the first kind of multi-manager investment fund in, in cannabis. Fantastic. And, uh, but, you know, before we get into your decision to get into the cannabis industry, we'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and uh, if you talk about, you know, your, your undergrad and how your career path transgressed from there. Sure. You know, so in, uh, in college at the University of Texas, uh, I had kind of two main areas of focus and passion that I followed and, and one was politics. And so I, I was on the student association. I volunteered at local mayoral campaigns and I finally uh, also uh, volunteered for Governor Ann Richards campaign uh, near the end of my, my uh, uh, tenure at, at University of Texas. And then and kind of academically, I was always very interested in Latin America, uh, Latin America history, economics, you know, the whole, you know, uh, shift from some of the dictators that they had and the movement into democracy and just how that all played out. And it's just that was something I was always very interested in. And so those were my two big passions as I as I left college and I stayed on uh, with uh, the political campaign and started working with the consultant for uh, Ann Richards a firm called McKinnon Media. And we did. TV, radio, speeches, political candidates across the Southwest, Democratic candidates across the Southwest, mm -hmm. and Governor Richards was one of our clients, Mayor Bob Lanier was one of our clients, and a bunch of other congressional, congressional and Senate candidates. And from there, I took that to uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, after Clinton got elected, and I was just trying to figure out, uh, you know, what 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 the pol political realm had for me. Uh, I worked uh, uh, not on Capitol Hill, but on K Street, worked for a, a lobby and public affairs firm there. Mm -hmm. But the the politics industry was just I didn't I couldn't get my arms around kind of just lack of a better word, kind of the hypocrisy and kind of two faced nature of it. I met mm -hmm. a lot of wonderful people that I became great friends with on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, but too often that, you know, when you saw those folks in their in their public life, they were very different than they were in their in their private life. And I just couldn't really reconcile that. I needed, I'm only one person, my one true self. And so I couldn't really reconcile that. So I needed to figure out a way to, to get out of politics and get into Latin America. Uh, and so that's when I kind of, you know, 1994 is when I kind of made a break with politics. And while I'm still involved and like engaged in politics, I'm a political junkie. I mean, I, I read everything that's out there, especially yeah. during the campaign years. Uh, but, you know, and so, you know, I still follow that, but I needed to kind of figure out a way to get in Latin America from a business perspective and a career perspective. I felt that was a better path for me. And so I decided to kind of just jump in and I, uh, uh, I interviewed, I was in DC at the time. So I interviewed with a bunch of different firms that, that, you know, had lobbying or public affairs contracts with like the government of Mexico or the government of Venezuela and things like that. And one of the firms, a firm called Burson Marsteller, uh, which has been merged and acquired a number of different times at the time, but at that time was the largest public relations firm uh, in the industry. Uh, and uh, I had interviewed uh, to go down to Mexico City. Uh, they, had, mm -hmm. they had recently been part of that whole NAFTA push to get NAFTA finalized and, and agreed mm -hmm. to, and, and it worked. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of you know, get into Latin America uh, through that avenue. But there really wasn't anything that was still kind of disjointed and decentralized, and there wasn't an opportunity for me there. And so 
they actually uh, hired me to go to Los Angeles because they needed somebody with a political background that had ties to kind of Hispanic community mm -hmm. to do a lot of work there for their corporate clients um, on the public affairs side. So I did that for a few years, for not a few years, a few months. Uh, it was kind of like my vacation in LA uh, for about eight months until I transferred with that same company to Miami to work for the president for Latin America and kind of be chief of staff for all the all the offices in the region. Wow. And that's really kind of got my got me into Latin America. Um, uh, it was a great time. I, I, I had a, I traveled all over Latin America. I lived in Buenos Aires. I lived in Lima. I did a lot of time in Sao Paulo and Rio. And so I just I really enjoyed that uh, uh, entry because it was it was just everything I really wanted to do working with really important clients, big names like Ford and Citibank and Fidelity mm -hmm. Investments. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, you know, that was a great foray. Uh, and then when I really got deeper into financial services was when Fidelity Investments was one of my clients. Uh, I helped them open their institutional offices in Argentina, Brazil, and Chile. We mm -hmm. helped meet with regulators. We helped you know, meet with potential clients, pension funds, and the like. And you know, I met a lot of the senior folks at that on that very large road trip that we did uh, through those countries. And a position came open uh, for a wholesaling job, which I had no idea what a wholesaler was at that time. Uh, but to come in and be based out of Miami, but to cover and travel to Mexico, Ecuador, Peru, uh, Colombia, Venezuela, Panama, and sell mutual funds that were uh, offshore mutual funds that were, had their jurisdiction in, in Dublin, mm -hmm. uh, but they were still managed by the Boston-based firm of Fidelity Investments that I was at, and sell those to, to banks, uh, brokerage houses, advisors uh, in Latin America, and, and to their high net worth clients. So that was a wonderful experience in that I did a lot of road shows. I did a lot of education on uh, global financial markets on, you know, what are mutual funds, how to invest in mutual funds. And I, you know, I was, I did cities big and small all over Latin America doing that. And uh, it was a really rewarding and fulfilling experience at the time to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, that, that I did that for about, I guess, about four, four and a half years. Uh, and then there were some kind of reorg changes and they wanted me to move, move into Latin America, but I, you know, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really into that. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, that's when um, uh, I joined Putnam Investments uh, in 2001. Uh, and that time I was the domestic wholesaler, but I was in Miami. And if you're not in Miami, mm -hmm. if you're not doing Latin America offshore business in Miami, you know, you really can't ever get that big or that relevant mm -hmm. uh, because it's mm -hmm. a big international market and a big hub for, for you know, financial folks from Latin America to come through. And so I did that for about a good seven and a half years. And that was a great experience from the sales side. I mean, that organization was just a beautiful selling machine, you know, it, maybe not so great on the investment management side, because I had some really, really rough years of performance when I joined that place. Mm -hmm. I joined in 2001 and it was just as the dot-com was unraveling, you know, and, and that firm, a number of the funds had loaded up on technology and internet stocks and the like. Mm. So they wrote it up and they wrote it all the way down. And, and I came in to really kind of pick up the pieces of my territory and kind of rebuild that uh, back. So that was a great lesson. And just, you know, perseverance. I mean, there was lots sure. of times people did not want to see me and, and not me personally, but, you know, my firm had just had this big you know, we were on headlines in 2004, 2005, our, head, our name was all over the financial press and local press. And it was really hard getting a meeting, but I just kept showing up. And, and that really kind of set the tone for, for my career here in Miami. And the fact that, you know, even when things were bad, uh, I was still a, a trusted resource and a person that people could know that I was going to have had integrity and honesty around everything that I was doing. Uh, and so that really, I think that really made my career. I mean, before mm -hmm. that I was, you know, I was doing fine and doing well, but that really kind of distinguished me uh, in the sense that, you know, I had to keep showing up. I had to keep uh, delivering and had to find ways to be relevant to folks, um, you know, when, when the company I was with wasn't as relevant to them at all. Uh, and so that was my kind of Fidelity and Putnam were like my active mutual fund life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then in 2008, in September, 2008, you know, the, the greatest serendipity of all time to join iShares uh, to build out their offshore ETF business. Uh, they'd had a presence in Mexico uh, building uh, ETFs to trade on the local Mexican exchange. But I was brought in to really work on U.S.-based advisors that manage money for Latin America clients and help them increase the utilization of ETFs. And so not just the ETFs that trade on New York exchanges, mm -hmm. but the ones that trade on the London exchanges and other exchanges around mm -hmm. the world that provide better tax advantages for offshore investors. 
And that's when I really just kind of jumped into the passive uh, way of life. Um, uh, I really felt like um, you know, over time, you know, the statistics show that, you know, on the mutual fund side, you know, uh, active mutual funds underperform by their fees. And, and that's just, that's just kind of what yeah. it is. And so um, I felt like the, the index and passive way was a better way and a better product for my advisors. And, and I also wanted to join a firm with a lot of integrity as well, too. Not that Putnam didn't have integrity, but there were parts of it that were, you know, they, they made my life really hard for, for, for several years. Um, um, you know, nothing I did, but really what was going on at the firm level. And so I really enjoyed kind of the ethos around iShares. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it extended from the product and the transparency of ETFs to the overall culture of the firm. And we had a lot of great vision and values about you know, speaking the truth and about uh, integrity in your work. And it's not just about results, but, but how you get the results as well and, and about collaboration. So it really infused in me uh, a kind of a much more teamwork approach rather than the lone wolf that I'd been used to. You kind of eat what you kill on the sales mm -hmm. side. Uh, and so that that really that really made a big shift for me. And I was already kind of thinking about you know passive in that way and index in that way, and then joining ETF iShares in the ETF world at that specific time was just you know the universe saying hey it's a good move. You know that quarter the final quarter of 2008 iShares had 100 million dollars in inflows, which was at that time was the kind of the biggest quarter of inflows that anybody had ever had. Obviously now wow. it's so much bigger. But that was a big deal because it was a financial crisis. People were moving out of individual stocks, coming into ETFs and just that basket. And so it, it, it really shook the world. And that was really a big kind of a tipping point as far as active to index and passive. And, you know, now, you know, uh, passive is as recently, I think just last year, surpassed the assets and active. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's still growing, you know, it's still growing like crazy. And so, you know, I, I, that was a great time. I, I did a lot of great things in that world, um, in that, that space. Uh, I worked very closely with a lot of the major firms like Credit Suisse and Merrill Lynch and UBS and Morgan Stanley to really build out these types of platforms that really gave broader access to these offshore ETFs to, to their, 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 their client community, the wealth management community. Uh, heretofore had been used by a lot of institutions and, and, and wealth managers were really starting to use it, but they didn't really understand what these products were. And so uh, uh, I, it, was a, it was a real educational uh, experience for them and me, you know, really learning how people are using these things. Uh, but the challenge for me on that one, just also from a philosophical perspective, was the fact that you know, I, I knew that uh, in the active side, portfolio managers were underperforming by their fees and no one's really smarter than the market. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that, that, that was kind of a given there. But then when you move to the ETF side, the product was better, but we were putting the entire onus on the advisor, broker, banker to build a portfolio for those clients uh, with those, those products. And I just couldn't really reconcile the fact that, you know, here uh, before at the active manager side, you had, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Wharton MBAs that all they did was run money. You know, 100% of their time had a massive team of analysts and those guys still underperformed. And so I just couldn't reconcile, uh, you know, from, from uh, just an investment standpoint that an advisor who has relationship management duties, bringing in clients, you know, managing their practice, investment management, you know, getting new clients, there's a whole lot of things that they're doing on a daily basis. And I just couldn't reconcile with the fact that we were given them these wonderful tools, but they had to figure out how to put them together in the right way for their sure. clients to give them a a better investment experience. And I just, I couldn't reconcile that. I, I you know, I, I felt good about my products, but I really felt like when I handed it off to somebody else, you know, I didn't know that was the best, if that was the best thing for, for their clients, you know, so I needed to find, I was trying to, I kept, my goal was just to try to find a better way, a better way for people to have a better investment experience and things that they just don't know about. And so that got me to dimensional fund advisors, who has a very uh, uh, rigorous process about how they invest, but also a, 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 uh, an investment theory and philosophy around that markets work and markets are efficient, you know, coming out of Gene Fama's work and Ken French's work on, on markets. And so, you know, that really spoke to me. That really spoke to me the fact that, hey, you know, in these markets, you know, no one's smarter than the market. There is wisdom in crowds and everybody's making a trade with their own information. And, you know, over the years with Reg FD and with decimalization, you know, there's very little asymmetrical information that's happening in the capital markets and the public mm -hmm. markets. Mm -hmm. And so everybody that makes a trade when it's on the way up or on the way down, they think they're making a good trade. And so that also kind of spoke to me. It's like, all right, so if markets work and markets are efficient, how do we extract performance out of the markets? 
And so it just, it just made so much sense to me when I got to dimensional and then really dug deep into, you know, the complexity of it. But as a simple formula is that, you know, small, you know, uh, equity outperforms debt, small outperforms large and value outperforms growth. I mean, that mm -hmm. to me was the, you know, it's like the Pythagorean theorem, A squared plus B squared plus C squared. I mean, it's just so simple to me, but yet you could do so much with that. And so that that really appealed to me, and I really enjoyed my time at Dimensional. It was a, a great time of thought leadership uh, for me, uh, a great time of really expanding kind of the way I thought about markets and how to invest. Yeah, uh, and, and so I really enjoyed that too. Yeah, that was a great that was a great foray into what I was doing. But then I was also, you know, at, at that time, you know, personally, I was going through a divorce. Uh, I needed to get back to Miami. My kids were living in Miami. I was living in Austin, Texas, and I was going back and forth. And so I need to figure out a way to get back to Texas, I mean, to Miami, but I didn't want to go to any other firm. I really felt with Dimensional and iShares that I, I was working at the best places I could find. Mm -hmm, and, and, you mm -hmm. know, I knew a lot of people in the financial industry. I knew, you know, I could go, I, I felt like I could, you know, find a place anywhere I wanted to, but I just didn't, there wasn't anywhere I wanted to go. And, you know, I was also, you know, looking at, you know, what the next phase, the next 20 years of my career were going to be. At this time, I think I was like 45, 46, as I was kind of thinking through these things. And, you know, if you look at the capital markets landscape from mutual funds and ETFs, you know, two thirds of every dollar go into Vanguard and BlackRock. And everybody mm -hmm. else is fighting for a smaller and shrinking piece of the pie on the public side. So I like to play in, 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 in markets that are flowing, that are growing. You know, that's the kind of, that's where I want to go. I don't really like to play in shrinking markets. I think yeah. it's really hard to make money in that and, have, and do good. Uh, and so I said, well, let's look at kind of alternative and private equity. And if you look at over time, over the last 20 years, you know, the slice of alternative uh, investments in institutional and wealth management has grown less than 5% to almost 20%. So that was a steady piece of growth that I could really kind of get involved with. And, and if you look at total private markets now globally, it's about $7.3 trillion, which is about half of what the wealth management industry is in the US, about 15, 16 trillion dollars. So, you know, I felt like, hey, that's growing. That's a space that I could, you know, compete in. Uh, but nobody was going to take a flyer on a, a guy who wants to come in as managing partner who's never done a thing in, in private equity. You know, they, you know, I had to I had to go out for you know, figure out my own way in that space. Uh, and and the, the best way I know how to do that is kind of join kind of frontier and emerging markets. And that can be kind mm -hmm. of geographically or sector or industry. And so I looked at crypto and I looked at cannabis, uh, but you know I've just been in investment management for so long. You know, price determination of price is very important. It's very important to understand if you're getting a good price or a bad price when you make an investment. You know, is it cheap? Is it over? Is it oversubscribed? Yeah. You know, is it expensive? What is that? And I really yeah. couldn't figure out. You know, maybe it's just on me the pricing on crypto. You know, you look at some of the Dogecoin stuff. You know, they're they're printing new coin every single day to infinity. So how do you set a price when you have influence supply? You know, those mm -hmm. kinds of things just, I couldn't really get my arms around. But in cannabis, you could. There's real fundamentals here. There's real products, real people that are doing this stuff. And so I felt like I could create an investment case for cannabis. I just needed to figure out what that was. I mean, I was living in Texas. You know, cannabis in Texas is, is, is uh, very small. Uh, and it's not growing. It hasn't really grown. There's a lot of great innovators there. But you really have to leave to really make your mark and you have to go to international markets to do that or other markets to do that. So um, uh, my partner and I, Meredith Yarbrough and I, we had um, we had actually uh, been talking about this for about six or seven months uh, about going into cannabis and starting mm -hmm. a venture together mm -hmm. as I was leaving Dimensional. Uh, and and then, you know, April, uh, April 2020, uh, April 2018. Uh, you know, time is now. Let's go. I just left Dimensional, and uh, uh, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. I said, "All right, the time is time is now. We got to get out of Texas and figure out what's going on in the space." So we just loaded up my SUV and did like a six-week road trip through California, Oregon, Washington, up into Toronto, back down through Nevada and Colorado, and then back into Texas, meeting everybody we could in the space. I'd had a lot of friends that moved over from financial services into cannabis. And also some friends from college who were doing some legal work in cannabis. So I had a small network that I could build off of. And then it just blew and it just blew up and grew. And you know, the first uh -huh. week we had four or five meetings. Every week thereafter, we had more and more meetings and lunches and dinners and just meeting the whole industry, you know, VCs and private equity, investment bankers, uh, growers and the like, and just trying to figure out, you know, what is this space? What is seed to sale? What's a terpene? You know, all those things that you uh -huh. kind of learn about cannabis, you know. And so and then we just took off and we got into it and, 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 and started building. So that, that was from UT to there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. Um, 
So it sounds like uh, a, a recurring theme in your career decisions have been really on targeting industries where you see a lot of growth, right? Be that moving from active management to passive on the public side, and then getting into the private side, finding a rapidly growing industry like cannabis that also suffered from capital constraints. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely been the case. I mean, it's one of those things where um, I've never been comfortable being comfortable. Uh, I, I thrive, uh, not so much in chaos, but in growth and change. Uh -huh. I mean, that's, that's really my MO. That's what I, that's what I enjoy doing. Uh, you know, I, I take a lot of uh, bows and arrows uh, coming at me being on the frontier, but, but I enjoy that. I enjoy, you know, really figuring things out. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, it's a lot easier now at 51 than it was when I was, you know, 21 and 31. Sure, sure. And it sounds too like, um, you know, I think it's really great that you're emphasizing the importance of value and price, right? Because I think, especially in emerging sectors, and as we've seen with you know, a lot of the Reddit traders and momentum traders that people are, are starting to lose that price sensitivity and, and, you know, are willing to pay for growth at any cost. And I think especially in cannabis and other emerging sectors, it's important to say, hey, there still needs to be some fundamental analysis here. You really need to understand Absolutely. what the intrinsic value of this asset looks like. Absolutely. And there's some great people doing that. You know, there's some great people like you guys and, and other uh, managers out there that are doing this mm -hmm. that... You know that is that is that is crucial. That's crucial to really understanding you know what you're investing in. And uh, I just felt like there was a way to kind of harness that expertise in, in the industry and really you know work with and and provide support and and overall resources to the industry mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that is not that is not my forte. Individual kind of you know discounted cash flow analysis and those kinds of things. That's really not my forte. Structure is really my forte. You know, I'm not trying to say, hey, I'm smarter than everybody else, but I can tell you that building the structure to capture the returns of the industry, I absolutely am able to do that. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great segue uh, to explain a little bit more about what exactly is a fund of funds? What does that structure look like? And, and um, what are some of the pros and cons of the fund of fund structure versus uh, directly investing in specific companies or with a single uh, investment manager? Absolutely. Well, you know, funds funds have been around uh, quite a while, um, uh, and it, it's it's a, a relevant philosophy for for lots of investors that want to get broad access to to you know private equity or private debt or just private markets. And in the broader market, it's absolutely needed because you know you or I or anybody else that has not been an LP at Sequoia or Benchmark, you're just not getting in on any deals. You're just mm -hmm. not you're, you're 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 so far removed from getting access to that that uh, a fund of funds is, is, is really generally the way that most people get access, you know, the late kind of high wealth management folks to get access to that, you know? Um, and so in cannabis, uh, as I, as we were getting into the space, you know, we worked for some uh, farmers in Hubble County, helping them, you know, transition from illegal to legal and writing business plans and modeling for them and things like that. Uh, just to really learn the industry. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, that was, that was a loss leader. You know, we put a lot, we put a lot of time and research the end of that, uh, and it was really just to learn. You know, that was really our R and D in the space. Uh, and then we started. You know, and from that, you could see, you know, kind of who was investing, who was buying. You know, what kinds of folks were 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 making these investments uh, inside the space. Yet outside the space, I kept hearing people like, "Man, I'd love to get access to cannabis. I just don't know how, and I don't know a way to get there." You know, at that time in 2018, there were I think there were like three ETFs at that point. Even there's more now, but there was only mm -hmm. a few then. Um, there was only still less, less than 20 publicly traded stocks uh, on the Canadian and the New York exchanges, uh, maybe five with any volume. You know, so there wasn't a lot of way, public ways to kind of get access to it. And the only way to get access on the direct side is if you were a deal hit your desk. And you never know why a deal hit your desk, but hey, I got a deal in front of my desk. And most of the people that come into cannabis that get a deal on their desk, it's usually a dispensary or a grow or extraction, you know, something like that. That, that, that's really limited. That's really how, how kind of lay persons outside of cannabis view cannabis, that, that those are the investment opportunities. Mm -hmm. You got to get a license. That's the way to make money in cannabis. Well, the reality is, is, is different, you know, and so there's different metrics around that and there's different returns you get from that. And so uh, it was really just trying to understand, you know, where the returns are coming from now, where they, we think they will be coming from uh, and, and how do we manage kind of that risk and volatility uh, I really feel like cannabis is a great place for private markets because you're not creating 
a market, you know, like, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example, like a Facebook or an Amazon, things like that. Those were things that did not exist before. Nobody had ever figured out, you know, said, oh, we don't, you know, it's like an iPhone. I don't need to know I need an iPhone until I got an iPhone, you know? And so in cannabis, you're really converting this kind of ready market to kind of this legal market and giving people access to it. And you're bringing in more people, absolutely. But there's already a ready market that people that want access to this space and, and really will try almost everything just to see what's going on in that space. So it's a little different. And I really believe that, that innovators, inventors, creators, entrepreneurs, that everybody should create a cannabis type business, whether it's B2B, B2C, you know, direct to consumer, whatever it is, because one, you're going to get in front of VCs. You just will. You, you, you wouldn't do that if you started a new AI company and tried to go up Sand Hill Road. You're just not going to do that. It's not going to happen. You will in cannabis. You also have a ready market that's available for you that people will try it. You're going to get a shot at it. This is like, you know, starting your company in an emerging market, you know, but you're doing it it's for not geographically, but sector wise. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. But what I saw uh, is that it was either you're going to be a can of billionaire, you're going to lose all your money uh, in individual deals. And then on the on the mm -hmm. fund deals, you get max 10 to 15 names that you get in portfolio. There's some out there that have, you know, 50 names, things like that, a different kind of model. But for mm -hmm. the most part, it's 10 to 15 names you get in a portfolio. And so, you know, as I thought about kind of the dot-com era, you know, even in the, you know, 2000 or 2001, you know, AOL and Netscape were huge. Those were massive names. Like, man, those are going to be around forever. I knew people that made 2,000% on AOL, you know, like, man, mm -hmm. this is the greatest thing ever. And, and you think about those things now, like they're afterthoughts, you know, people, they're discarding, to, AOL just basically got discarded in a deal that just happened. It was like an afterthought of what's going on. And so I really believe like those, the, the next, you know, whatever big brand name, we haven't even found it again. It's not even, it, it yeah. may be there now, but it may not be. And so what, what I thought is like, well, you know, if I was back in 99 and 2000, if I could find a way to just kind of harness all these companies you know, all the returns we're getting and not, you know, bet on this one area, one sector, one, one place that I think that could work. And so how do I build something that, that has diversification that, that puts me, you know, if we're the risk over is over here, you know, for one company and so I, you know, I, I want to be over here that provides diversification, risk management, volatility management, and gives people, you know, allows them to sleep at night while they're having their investment, create a better investment path for them from uh, you know initial investment to exit, so how do you do that, uh, and and how do you get 100 150 names in a portfolio? Well, to do that directly, it's a big undertaking. It, it's a big team. It's a lot of capital. It's a lot of work. A lot of mm -hmm. underwriting. It's a lot of stuff. And so the mm -hmm. way to get to market kind of quicker than that was through a fund of funds. Uh, there was enough. Mm -hmm. I felt there was enough scale uh, in the cannabis space to be able to do that. Um, luckily, we found that there is plenty of scale. There's plenty of great investors in the space and coming into the space that we could really build out a robust offering that is diversified by debt and equity, diversified by sector, state, and lead investor to mm -hmm. give kind of a range of returns and really allow you to kind of just capture it, capture the market that's growing at you know 25 to 30 percent a year, uh, and 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 we'll see what happens at the end. But you know, within this portfolio, you'll be able to kind of double down. Uh, on any yeah. co-investments that come out of it. And so, you know, I think it just, it was a way for people to kind of get access to, to cannabis uh, that, that, you know, they didn't have to make a, a bet on any one area and allow them to kind of get more exposure if they so chose through co-investments. That makes total sense. And, you know, I think uh, a couple of things I'd highlight, you know, you, one, you mentioned the comparison versus crypto and other emerging sectors. And we draw that comparison all the time as well, right? Because, of course, you know, it's clear at this point that blockchain protocol has, is going to have massive applications, that there's certainly going to be a space in the future for cryptocurrencies, but you don't know what is the intrinsic value of those currencies. Is it going to be Bitcoin wins at all? Is there going to be some upstart one like Dogecoin that no one saw coming, right? It's, it's much more of a uh, pie in the sky, I think, equation, right? Versus in cannabis, you already know you've got, call it $100 billion of black market demand. So it's very much just about what are the companies that are going to transition that yeah. demand from the black markets to the legal markets. Absolutely, um, I agree. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think the co-investment uh, model makes so much sense too, right? I mean, from uh, before key investment partners came from Partners Group, which you know started really very much as a fund of funds themselves, then got into secondary fund investment, then co-investments, and and that was really 
the strategy they pursued was really how do we find solutions for our clients and get them the diversified private markets exposure that they're really looking for? Absolutely, I've read the the, the Harvard uh, case study on partners, and oh, sure. uh, uh, <laughs> it appeals it appeals to me directly. You know, yeah, we had these great you know uh, fun fellows work with us, and so I got to see a lot of the case studies there. Uh, and I read the partners one with great intent. You know, I I, I really. Uh, appreciated the the thoughtfulness that that partners had as they built out their firm, and and then the crucial decision to go public. You know, it, you know that's right. one of those things that that you know it it comes about out of more that seemed like a lot of times comes out of more circumstance. I think I really believe that that if your goal is to go public, you're gonna anytime that's kind of your goal, you're gonna do everything you can to kind of get there. But if your goal is to create a better investment solution for your LPs. And then you're going to go public because you've got to handle some things around the business to ensure that you're able to deliver that. I like that model. I like that model yeah. a lot because it, 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 it's intentional. It's deliberate. It, it's really one of those ways that your intention is to provide the best returns, best experience for your LPs rather than, hey, how do I go public as quickly as I can? You know, and so sure. I really like that model. And, I, and like I said, I've, I've studied it quite a bit and, and you know, it, it plays into kind of the model we have for growth, you know, series of fund of funds, some direct funds and things like that as we go forward. That's great. Um, so then kind of fo following that path a little bit, how did you develop the specific theses at La Oja Capital? What are some of the types of funds that you're looking to invest into? Yeah, so we made, we made a couple of decisions early on that, um, I think I think they're pretty solid. We'll see how I mean, you never know. We'll see how they play out. But you know, we wanted to be a U.S. only fund for the first one. Uh, there's a lot of great things going on internationally, but this the U.S. is the one we know the most and we know mm -hmm. the best. Uh, and until I do another roadshow across Europe and Asia and Latin America to to see all the businesses there, then we'll, we'll expand that out. But we did. We felt U.S. was the way to go. We also wanted to do privates only. Uh, you know, public uh, investments have had a nice run at the end of Q4 last year and kind of the start of this year, but there's just so much volatility and noise around mm -hmm. that space mm -hmm. right now, and and especially with where we are in the broader markets, we're we're in a period of high excess, you know, and, and a yeah. lot of volatility, and so I just didn't want to uh, invite that in for this first fund. It's a 10-year fund, and. You know, we've had great uh, public market performance over the last 10, 20 years. I just don't know if that's going to be the same over the next 20 and uh, next 10 to 20, especially at the prices we are now. You know, it's just mm -hmm. kind of you know, math. And so, uh, and so those were the, those were two very big decisions that we did. The second, the third decision we made was that we were uh, uh, mainly going to invest in fund two and up, or if you put mm -hmm. to get put can, uh, capital to work the prior 18 months. We just needed people to have experience investing in cannabis because as we were doing our research, we found a lot of uh, zombie funds that that maybe started to raise 2017 or 18, most likely 2018 and, and then 2019, the market kind of shifted. They never sure. finished their raise or they, they got a few investments and then trouble hit and they didn't have the experience to kind of do any workouts with those things. And so, you know. You know, I believe risk and reward are related. We don't know exactly how. And so all the early investors that made it through took the risk and were rewarded. They've had great IRRs. They've had some great exits and things like that. Uh, uh, but th that they took the risk to kind of enter this kind of this crazy market early on. Now, you know, while from the outside, it looks still looks like the Wild West. When you're in it, there's real fundamentals here. You know, there's mm -hmm. real fundamentals of each business that you're looking at. There's real structure. You know, there's real management teams that are in this and real products that are getting done. And so I think it, 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 uh, the, the, the risk return ratio is a little different now. I think there's still tremendous upside to be had. But I think you have to be more judicious about what you're doing rather than just kind of throwing a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks. Uh, so, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that we had folks that were seasoned investors. So if they had a pedigree, like you guys from partners or others from Carlisle or ran their own hedge funds or credit funds, you know, we needed to have some real investors in the space uh, that would allow us to just kind of piggyback on their success. And so we just really, I felt like, yeah, I felt like we were stacking the deck in our favor for success. You know, U.S. only, the biggest market so far. Uh, privates only, you know, I think that's going to reduce a lot of the noise that from the outside mm -hmm. public markets. And then fun to and up, you know, seasoned investors that had convinced, you know, had returns to convince the LPs to re-up, uh, to mm -hmm. go for a second fund or a third fund. Uh, and so those were the key decisions that we made early on. And, and then we just started doing research on every single fund in the space uh, to really, you know, round that out and really figure out if our premise and our thesis 
uh, with sound, you know? And so yeah. Uh, yeah, I want, yeah, I try, like to, I try not to have kind of like selection bias. I really want to be as agnostic as possible to the things that I do. Because as I said, I, I'm not the star manager. The, the structure is the star. And so I want to make sure that I, I'm being as agnostic as possible to the, to, the, to, to the opportunities while I'm managing the overall risk of the portfolio. And so yeah. I felt those kind of decisions would really kind of stack the deck in our favor for success. And if I structure it right, where it's diversified, we put we put uh, capital where we believe returns are going to come from in the short term, medium, and long term, uh, and then structure it across you know diversified diversified across state sector and lead investor. I thought that was a pretty good premise, and I think it's a premise that yeah. a lot of people could understand uh, and and could figure out as they make their foray into investing in cannabis. Yeah, no, that premise makes total sense. Um, and I think it's also really smart of you guys to say so focus on where you are spending time and where you're not spending time, right? And I think one of the uh, issues or mistakes I'd say uh, we've seen some investors in the space uh, fall into is that they suffer from strategy drift, right? Because the longer you're in the cannabis space, the more opportunities you see, right? As you mentioned, I mean, Europe, there's tons of opportunities, Latin America, of course, as well. You know, there's stuff on the real estate side, stuff in the public markets. And so it can be very uh, easy to suffer from shiny object syndrome, right? But you really do want to stay focused on what is your core strategy, know every in and out about that specific space, and then pick, you know, these are the ones that we think are really going to be the leaders here longer term. Oh, that makes all the sense in the world, Jordan, because as we've seen, uh, you know, right now, there's a, there's a lot of bright, shiny objects. There's a lot of really great companies in cannabis that have gone through a series A and are maybe going through a series B or C, but are you know one or two rounds away from a big exit. And yeah. that's where a lot of money is coming. A lot of new funds are coming through there. A lot of old funds are adding that to their overall portfolios. And you know there are thousands of companies in cannabis in the US. I mean, thousands and new ones pop up every day and every new market that comes in. You know, who knows how many new companies are gonna pop up out of New York and New Jersey area. I mean, that's just huge. And so I think it's 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 one of those areas where you know capital is still constrained. And so if you can show, hey, look, these are the types of companies that I'm investing in, and like people can heard those names or I can look them up and see who they are, it makes it easier to kind of raise the capital in that sense. But from an investment standpoint, it, it's really pushing a lot of the uh, capital towards those few names, you know, ten names that are getting, you know, ten to twenty names that are getting all the capital right now, and pushing valuations higher. And, yeah. you know, I just think that, you know, there's still, if people are in the seed and uh, late seed and kind of early stages uh, uh, of private equity, you're still getting things that, you know, one to one and a half times revenue. And then you sure. go to kind of this other names, those multiples are much higher, you know, they're much bigger and, and they're, they're trying their value. And because we had this big run up in the capital markets in the public capital markets, using those valuations to justify some of the valuations yeah. in the private space. And, and they're, they're really not linked, you know, they're just really not linked right now because there is such a delinking from reality in the public markets now uh, overall. Mm -hmm. And so to, to kind of extrapolate that to what real businesses are doing in the cannabis space and growing revenues, increasing margins and things like that. I don't know if they, they, they actually equate when you're making kind of a comp-based analysis like that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's something that we try to stay really focused on as well, because again, I mean, to kind of what we've been talking about, some of these top performing market leader market leading assets have also gotten pretty high valuations and you know not to specifically name anything but it, it does seem like there there's certainly um, a risk of folks chasing these big names and you know also with the influx of SPAC capital that almost inherently the the SPAC transactions can force uh the SPACs to overpay for a business just because there's not enough cannabis companies of size to justify the SPAC acquisition so it's it's a uh, Definitely an interesting dynamic that you see going on in the market. Yeah, I mean, you see some of these facts out there that, you know, just massive numbers. I mean, how many cannabis companies could you buy with that? You know, if, yeah. you, if you go away from the, the, you know, the ones that kind of the, that mid-tier that is that are not public, but that are, you know, really large size MSOs and things like that you know, the, with a billion dollar fund, you could buy a whole chunk of them, you know, that's back. But, you know, I don't know if that's really all that, I don't really know if that's a good long-term, you know, future for those companies. I mean, look, I, I think SPACs are great for the sponsor. Uh, I think if you look at returns for SPACs uh, over the last 20 years, I think every single, I, I, this is a generalization, but I've uh -huh. seen just the number of reports. I think every single one of them is negative, you know, or, or lower than their initial offering, you know? So, 
Uh, I think there, there is a route to uh, uh, public markets that is kind of well-worn and, and works. You know, you go yeah. on a roadshow, you do your S1s, you get all kinds of scrutiny on what you're doing. And, and, and it, if it's true and real, then, then it gets done. And sure, there's a lot of companies that go public that, that aren't doing well and, and you know, whatever, it's a good, bad management alike. But I think if you kind of circumvent that route, you know, where you're only having one sponsor, you know, one person, one group, one team look at it, no matter how great and wonderful they are, you know, no one's smarter than the overall market. They're just not. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, and I think as, as we start getting smart on the spec market, one question we ask is, is this going to be a similar transition like you saw with passive, or sorry, active ETFs moving to passive ETFs? Are SPACs just a better structure than the traditional closed-end illiquid fund? Um, and I think there certainly are elements of SPACs that are very attractive. I mean, obviously, the liquidity is, sure. is a huge bonus to it. But, but to your point, I think there's also a lot of issues with the structure as well that we're still sorting through and, and will be happening over the next several years. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And yeah, I think there's a, there's a number of, I think, you know, Harvard and Booth both have some really great thought pieces on SPACs and looking at performance of SPACs and the things like mm -hmm. that. And so, you know, it, it, there's a place for everything, you know, we mm -hmm. just made some decisions uh, early on in this fund that we wouldn't include those kind of you know, uh, public vehicles. We've been asked to, sure. to jump in on a number of those things. And, uh, you know, I, I, while I think it would have been great for our fund overall, I, I just, I, it doesn't. It just doesn't reconcile with me on the kinds of things that I believe, and I'm pretty simplistic. I'm really. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, a super complex dude on those kinds of things. I think that um, there is there is process and rigor and rubric that people follow, uh, and 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 as long as they're following that and they're consistent with that, I think I'm okay with what you know, you know uh, uh, people do. I don't need to see sure. you know, somebody else's worldview and, and completely agree with it. You know, to invest with someone. But th there is some element of that too. I mean, I had that when I was with Dimensional. You know, Dimensional big premise is that markets work, and so if markets work, it, it was really hard for me to to reconcile with somebody who said, "Well, markets are inefficient. That's why I'm going to go with this fund manager." I, mean, I don't think you can believe both. I, I, I mm -hmm. think that overall, you know, there can be some anomalies and things like that. But overall, markets work. Everybody that's yeah. buying and selling is doing it up there. Nobody's forcing them, and they all have the same information nowadays. And so if you're buying a stock that's going up, you know, the guy that sells it to you thinks he's already done and he thinks it's a good trade. And if you're selling on the way down, the guy's like, man, I got rid of that one. And the other guy's like, man, this is a great value for me. You know, yeah. so, so those are the kinds of things that I believe in. And, 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 and so if, if, if everybody's got the right information, everybody's making this trade, I'm cool with that. I'm, I'm not so cool with kind of asymmetrical information that some yep. people think they have or don't have and kind of put that over on others. Yep, that makes total sense. Um, so then diving into where you are investing, uh, are, is your thesis still focused predominantly on um, uh, ancillary equity funds as well as plant touching debt funds? Yes, it is. And, and the reason we did that is that, you know, if you look at each of the new markets that come into cannabis and they get approved, I mean, there's hyper growth and those initial kind of licensees, you know, whether it's cultivation or dispensary or extraction, there's, there's just a lot of hyper growth that comes out. But then it just kind of tails off, you know, then, then you just see, we, we, you know, we know what cap rates are for agriculture, you know, I, I don't know if there's a premium on growing hops, uh, you know, for the alcohol industry as there is for cannabis right now growing, you know, uh, flour for the industry. And so, you know, we, we know what long-term cap rates are for agriculture and, and, and it just doesn't, it doesn't reconcile that we'll have these crazy uh, multiples and crazy growth on the agricultural side for cannabis forever. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And so yeah. what I felt that, again, we're, the, we're a 10 year fund. I think we're still all very early in cannabis. We're not even in an inning yet. We're still building the playing field for it. You know, still states that don't have it. There's still places you can't get access. Mm -hmm. I mean, look in LA, in LA County, the city of LA doesn't allow any dispensaries and they have any licenses anywhere. So that's pretty big. That's a pretty big deal. And so, so there's still a lot of access we're still trying to get. Where cannabis is not ubiquitous. I mean, it is for you and me because this is all we do every single day. But the layperson out there is like, oh, I heard about this THC or CBD thing, you know, and that's really all they know. And so, you know, we're 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 nowhere near uh, even really starting the game yet. We're really just kind of building the overall playing field. Uh, there's nothing that's ubiquitous, uh, and so we're just trying to figure out what that's going to look like. And yep. so I felt like uh, that there was opportunity to to 
you know, just get in and figure that space out and, and figure out what's going to work for, for a wider swath of investors rather than the folks that were just really, really had the risk appetite to go into it first. Yep. That makes total sense. Yep. Um, and so then as you think about thematically, you know, are there specific sectors that you think are maybe overheated or where a lot of managers are uh, potentially overpaying today? Well, I think I think a lot of people are paying for uh, you know new license states. I mean, the the numbers and some of those things are just outrageous. The amount of mm -hmm. capital that has to go into to launch into a new market is really astronomical, uh, especially some of these limited license states. I mean, I think they're, sure. they're, the the numbers are public public on the ones in Florida. You know, the, all those licenses were upwards of twenty five million each. You know, uh, and, and I think one just recently sold last year for like forty five million. You know, you got to sell a lot of product to kind of make up for that. And that's yeah. and that's just to get going, you know, yeah. and, and you still have to build out the entire infrastructure for these states. And so, you know, there, there's there's, um, you know, we'll, we're still yet to figure out what the model is going to be going forward. Is it going to be kind of an alcohol, you know, uh, you know, beer bottler, distributor type model or things like that? You know, what kind of model are we going to have that that mm -hmm. that gets, uh, you know, produces and grows cannabis and, and distributes it to the overall market. You know, what's that going to look like? Is it going to be decentralized? Is it going to be, you know, an ITT kind of conglomerate and things like that? I don't think we know that yet. And so that it's hard for me to look at a, 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 a new market, say like Georgia, where you have to put up so much capital and so much bonded insurance to even just get going on that stuff. Uh, you know, it's yeah. going to take a long time before that kind of comes into play. And, and then you have other markets like Oklahoma, where everybody gets a license. And it's really exciting until there's just so much supply that, you know, yeah. it, the, the, the price just drops dramatically. So, you know, we still have market forces work in each and in every individual state that happens. And, and depending on the regulatory structure, it kind of dictates what happens after that. So it, 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 I think that part is still that I see and, and I still see kind of, you know, people, you know, in, in the regular community is like, oh, man, I'm getting in on a license in Maryland. I'm getting in a license yeah. of this. I'm like, I hear you. And, and that's exciting and all, but there's a whole lot more to the overall cannabis space. Right. Uh, my, my thing that I think that I focus and think about a lot is really what's that next wave? What's that next moonshot? Look, we're, cannabis is growing at such a great growth rate right now that we're all going to do well. Our LPs are going to do well. We're all going to do well in it, you know, because it is growing and there's massive capital, massive, you know, consumer demand for these products and what we're doing. But once we get past this kind of federal legalization or descheduling or whatever it's going to be that allows for much more wide scale research on this stuff, then we'll really see you know, this is going to be better for the human race. You know, yeah. us as a species having these cannabinoids in our systems is going to be better for us than when we didn't have it in our system. Yeah. It just is. I mean, I've seen it anecdotally and you know, you've seen it too. People that work with these products with mental and with, with health patients and, and wellness patients, I mean, they're doing some monumental things. And so, you know, I think that, that uh, we have yet to, there are people that are kind of looking at that and kind of getting to that, but it, it's hard to really have a market for that just yet. I mean, even just yeah. the epidiolics with DW Pharma, you know, those numbers were astronomical, you know, but those guys made a bet on very one small segment of that kind of health uh, wellness space and did fantastic. So yeah. just imagine, you know, if, if we have, you know, I, I, people laugh at me when I say, but, you know, what if we cure cancer with this stuff? You know, what does that going to mean? You know, sure. what, what do you, sure. what does that mean for an investor? You know, you only need one of those in your portfolio to make it happen. And so I think that's really the next wave. And that's really why I started this fund so I could get into the space now and really understand all the moving parts of what's going on. And so that, you know, this fund gets launched, fund two, fund three, you know, everybody's coming to me and our firm first, you know, hey, this is what we're thinking about. And we can kind of talk about that because we've got the research uh, right now in all the US and soon we'll have all the research uh, uh, globally of all the different funds in the space and what they're doing. Say, hey, look, there's a bunch of funds that are focusing on this space, man. This is an area that, you know, that nobody's really focusing on, but there's still a lot of high growth in that area. You know, so we can seed some of those things. We can incubate some of those things uh, that that kind of fits into what what it, what we believe was going to happen long term for cannabis and, and cannabinoids, you know, cannabis is one thing that people kind of equate to THC, but I really believe that once we really broaden this out with the cannabinoids, it, it's just going to mean so much more to people. So much more. And, and, you know, I think the other point I'd highlight on the benefits of cannabinoids, which I agree with you hundred percent. I also think that frankly, there's just been so much destruction caused by the war on drugs, by the controlled substances act, 
you know, disproportionately obviously impacting communities of color and, and really ravaging those communities, particularly over the last 50 years, as we've just seen enforcement increase and all these efforts put to criminalize people who are selling a, a drug that frankly is, is much more of a medicine than, you know, a harmful drug. And so, so I, that's one of the uh, aspects of the industry I'm most excited about as well. You know, and I think this industry does it is or at least I can, the only comparison I can have is my old financial services world. And there were decades, literally decades that I was the only brown person in the room. And there was maybe other two or three other women, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that there is, while there is still a lot of that in cannabis, at least on the financial side, uh, there is uh, an emphasis on it and people are making real investments and 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 diversity and social impact and yeah. and providing resources and guidance you know there, there are companies that you know that that uh, uh, you know, will target you know communities and, and 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 do their market research on certain communities and really find the right people that fit in with that community to be able to be part of that community and deliver their products and services that way in a way that's meaningful to that community and so uh, and, and they will you know much like um, uh, uh, you know, franchises, things like that. You know, you go to a McDonald's uh, in, 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 in kind of inner cities or, or other areas, you know, that it reflects, it reflects what's going on in that community and all the people that are working there, people that are going there, they're all looking, walk and talk the same. Uh, and, and the same can be said for these things in cannabis. There is um, widespread uh, utilization and uh, uptake of this um, across all uh, uh, races and colors and genders and things like that. But you know, it it has been um, it's been too long that it, it it's been prejudiced against you know people of color as far as being you know utilizing this stuff, and you you can see that in, in the conviction rates of of uh, you know minor crimes like this of possession of of marijuana and things like that that are just so onerous. Uh, but I do think the industry is doing a lot better, and I also uh, you know we talk to a lot of funds, and and I I don't, I don't know specifically off the top of my head, but. I'd say uh, three out of five are are have this as part of their you know PPM and their philosophy and their thesis of what they're trying to do, yeah. Uh, and and some don't have it, but in practice they do it, you know. And so <laughs> I think that is also uh, uh, really bodes well, you know, because you look at the broader kind of VC private equity world. There's very few. I, mean, I think you can count on one hand the number of Latino-owned businesses that have received VC funding. Mm. One hand, I know I know two of them. You know, that's it. That's it. And yet in cannabis that, that is getting, um, you know, there's, there's, there's funds that have, you know, four and five, you know, Latino and, and black owned and Asian owned companies yeah. inside them, yeah. you know? So there's a lot more diversity on the cannabis side, as far as the investment dollars that are in capital that are going into the industry that are really picking out uh, and really being uh, determined and intentional about where the capital goes and who it goes to. Uh, so I think that's great for the industry. And, and, you know, we're, we're trying to build a different kind of firm as well too, you know, we're a minority and woman-owned firm and we're making sure that, you know, we have, you know, we have specific hires that, that we're looking for uh, uh, to make sure that we are, you know, that we look different, that we look, you know, that yeah. we have a diversity of opinions in our, in our overall firm and to do that. So it, it's great to do that in this space. And I don't know if I could do it and I guess I could, but I think it's easier to do it in cannabis because it's just more open. People are more open to the sure. dialogue. People are more open to the discussion and, and, and interested in hearing about it. It's not so foreign when I kind of talk about, you know, the kind of team we're building. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, we, we certainly see it from our end as well. You mentioned more broadly financial services, right? And I think the stats are something like 90% of people who work in asset management or investment banking are white males, right? And it's, yeah. it's tough because as we think about, you know, obviously as we try to scale our, our company as well and bring on new people, well, you know, naturally the first thought is who have I worked with before that I knew was a great performer and you think through and like, oh, that was a white male. He was another white male. Yeah. And then you think about, yeah. well, obviously, you know, part of our business model, very important thing also is fundraising, right? And so think about yeah. who do we know that has access to capital? Generally, again, it's it's the white males. So you see it's, it's just how yeah. the system has really been, you know, given that relative advantage, right? Or, or white privilege or whatever sure. you want to call it. And, you know, really finding ways to make sure that we're correcting for that and doing everything we can to find great diverse candidates to, to come not just to invest into but also to come on board for key as well it's it's a really big initiative that we that we're working on too 
you know, Jordan, that really resonates with me too, because, you know, as we're building this out, all right, oh yeah, I'd like a, this type of profile. And I think back, well, look, well, the first five are like white male dudes, you know, because that's what I worked with, you know? Yeah, those, those are great. So, you know, you have to kind of, you know, uh, luckily I worked for some, some uh, you know, great firms and like iShares was super diverse. It was the first time that I sat in a room and, and there, were, there were people of all shapes and size and colors and, uh, uh, you know, gender orientations and the like. And, and, mm -hmm. and it was the San Francisco base and the ethos around it was, was about culture first. The product was phenomenal, but the culture was really important, how you built that around that. And so I take a lot of, of learnings from that. And then I also, you know, I, and then that got bought by BlackRock, which is a much larger, you know, publicly uh, traded company. But I got to give it to Larry Fink. I mean, Larry Fink has done a really good job of, of hiring, you know, really great people from all walks of life into that mm -hmm. firm. Uh, mm -hmm. And and I have this, I've, I've been mulling over this kind of blog post I want to write about Larry as being one of the greatest private equity investors there is. We use the public markets, but, you know, he came out of Blackstone. He had this tiny mm -hmm. little mortgage sure. company that's turned into BlackRock, the, the largest asset manager in the world by far. And so, yeah. you know, and it was all done by acquisition. So I, I you know, I, I've worked with some really great investors, but I, I do, I think Larry, Larry's done a really good job of, of hiring a lot of diverse talent into his organization uh, and, and, well, the culture itself is not a, a place that I really enjoyed, you know, overall it was a good place. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. You know, and I think it's, it's funny, I think actually this discussion, I think ties back nicely to how we started with regards to the limited licenses um, in the sense that, you know, I think it's certainly natural that investors would say, hey, we want to own a license in a state where it's limited. You know, you look at Illinois, where GTI and Cresco have exploded, or states like Florida, you mentioned, where Trulieve has really been successful. But part of the trend that we're seeing and we expect to persist is that over time, we think more and more states are going to move away from the limited license to either, you know, much more competitive licensing or uncapped altogether, and also putting more and more of an emphasis on local license ownership, on social equity ownership. And so we have the concern um, longer term that, you know, the value of these limited license licenses will decline over time, right? Similar to how you saw taxi medallions in New York completely erode yeah. value once Uber and Lyft came along. Yeah, right. Yeah, those, those medallions used to be super valuable. I mean, like you would you, you mortgage your house to get one, you know? And so I think that's kind of, I think you're exactly right. I mean, there, there are, there is precedent for things like that. And so I think that's the part that, that people have to kind of figure out. And, and if you're investing in public markets, you really have to think about that because the MSOs are, the big MSOs are really the main ones that are trading out there, you know? And so yeah. you have to think about what's that gonna mean long-term for this investment. And I, and I, again, I think about that all the time. So if you're making a public investment right now, whether it's cannabis or anything else, uh, are you saying, hey, I'm really excited about the unlimited, unlimited upside I have in this investment? Or you're like, man, I hope I get out before this is all over. Right. You know, when we're on the private side, you're like, man, I'm really excited about the unlimited upside I have in this company. I am excited about the exits that could come, the acquisitions that could come, the yeah. growth itself that it could come. And it's not Pollyanna. I'm not just kind of like talking my book. It's just the reality that we see right now in the private markets in cannabis, the one that I know the most, that that is the reality. There is unlimited upside for a lot of these companies. And I think it's a, it's a great investment for right now. Absolutely. So then on that front, Cato, are there um, other sectors that you're seeing as maybe a little bit unloved or forgotten about by fund managers that you think they should be paying more attention to today? Well, uh, you know, it's part and parcel of that, that discussion about the, the sexy names and the, the, the sizzle and the, some of those names that people sure. are coming into. People, you know, there is a lot less in the seed stage right now, in the true kind of VC seed stage in cannabis right now. There's, there's, there's the players that are there, are, are, you know, they're smaller by design because they're writing smaller checks, but there's a lot, a lot less of those right now. If we look at our overall universe, I mean, half of it's kind of this in this growth kind of PE stage right now. That's kind of where most of the money is and most of the investors are coming from. Uh, and there's very few in, in kind of de dealing with the seed stage. And, and, and I get it. I understand, uh, uh, you know, we're all trying to deliver for our LPs and that kind of record, you know, but as, as, 
as a fund of funds, you know, we're trying to make sure we're diversified across all these sectors. Sure. And I really feel like the seed stage is, is an area that requires a, a hearty stomach. I mean, it really does. It, it wasn't for me. You know, it wasn't something that I was really comfortable doing. Uh, but uh, there are plenty of great managers that, that really have great analysts and analyst teams to be able to do that. But I think that's the area that we're really lacking. And, and we'll see how that plays out, how that unfolds, uh, you know, as we go longer into this economy and this, this tenure, uh, what that means as far as growth for some of those companies. Uh, I, I believe that it's just going to mean that some of those that survive and grow are just the best companies out there. And so we'll see how it goes. Yep. Well, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm curious, how do you think that, you know, over call it maybe the next one to three years, the capital markets landscape is going to develop? Do you expect to see more institutional investors come into the market or do you think that there's still going to be a little bit of a you know, barrier to entry to the existing cannabis funds in the market? Man, I, uh, it's, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question um, because, you know, the common, uh, the, the common wisdom out there is like, oh, once it's legalized, everybody's coming in. And, and I'll just give you an example. You know, I've worked in and around Latin America my whole career, working for the largest asset managers, you know, Fidelity, Putnam, uh, iShares, and BlackRock, and Dimensional. You know, there, there are uh, thousands of mutual fund companies and ETF companies out there. There's only hundreds that are in Latin America, you know, mm -hmm. that invest in Latin America, that have operations in Latin America. You know, they, they may all have emerging market funds or Latin America funds that, you know, pick companies in this. But as far as having an operational institutional presence in those markets, there's so many that don't. And that's really just kind of bias or prejudice or knowing the market and things like that. I think it's going to be the same thing in cannabis. There is some deep seated uh, uh, prejudice, not not a negative, just an overall bias uh, against it for some that that they may never get over. Uh, and 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 the other thing too is that if you're not actively kind of looking at it right now, you're still looking at it from a lay perspective, like oh, well, it's all grows and dispensaries and things like that. And so it's going to take a while for that to play out. I, I do believe it, it's additive to the overall industry because, you know, it's just more capital and valuations grow and things like that. And so we're all, uh, you know, the, the rising tide lives all boats. Um, but I don't think it's, I don't know, I don't know if it's going to be this wholesale ship where, you know, you, you flip the switch and everybody's yeah. in. Uh, yeah. Because like I said, you know, that there's still plenty of companies that don't have any presence in Latin America and, and not because there's not money there. Uh, it's because there's just some bias against it or a knowledge or lack of information or knowledge about those markets. And that may be the case in cannabis as well, too. That maybe people say, well, I'm doing just fine with what I'm doing here. There's really no need to go into this space. It still has all these, you know, things about it, you know, these negative uh, uh, biases and prejudices about it that may not happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's going to be more capital when it comes in. Uh, but as far as a wholesale shift, like everybody's in cannabis, I don't think that's going to happen like that. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, the the stigma you're talking about is really unfortunate part of the industry, but it is a huge impact. It, it really is. And it has certainly dissipated over time. And I think it will continue to do so. But there still is, you know, 50 years of people being told this is an evil drug that'll make you crazy and you should go to jail forever. Right. That's not something you just unwind overnight. And, you know, no. At all. And look, I, I talk to folks all over the country, you know, and then all over Latin America too. But, you know, I don't get the, the in Texas, specifically when I talk to either potential LPs or just, you know, former colleagues and friends there, Texas is the only place people ask me about the cartels. You know, I can talk to LA, talk to New York, I can talk to Columbia. Nobody asks about the cartels, but I talk to folks in Texas. It's not everybody, but that's the only place that, I, that every time I was talking about this fun, what we're doing, well, what about the cartels? What are they yeah. going to do? I'm like, I don't know. You know, maybe they'll get a license. I don't know. We'll see. But, uh, <laughs> that, 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 so that's still out there. But it's just funny to me that uh, Texas has been the literally the only place that people ask me about it. Yeah, that is really funny. Yeah. 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 You know, and the other thing I think we'll see as a, a hurdle to a lot of traditional institutional investors is, you know, one, you've got a lot of them have vice clause restrictions, which their limited partners say, you know, you can't invest in any quote unquote exactly. sin industry like tobacco or alcohol, firearms, you know, and we can go down the whole rabbit hole of should cannabis even be considered a sin when it's clearly got medicinal right. applications, you know, there's no ESG exactly. issues with investing in firms like Coca-Cola and, and Frito-Lays, right. right? So anyway, I think that's, that's still going to be a, an issue that persists, uh, as well as the fact that, you know, I think a lot of folks will view it as not necessarily an ESG-friendly industry, which again, I, I would argue 
um, is probably not not the right way to look at it, but is is frankly going to be the, probably the default that most folks think about. So I, I do think, to your point, there's probably going to be uh, still quite a moat from a lot of these traditional institutional investors from jumping into cannabis. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you know, I've talked to folks at the uh, you know Blackstone and others, and you know that that the same kind of deal. It's like you know their their view and, and nothing against them. It's really smart people, and they're doing really great things. But their views on cannabis is 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 limited, and and yeah, you know, you have to really kind of be in the space to kind of get get a sense of it and understand what's really going on. And you know, and the more I get into it, the more uh, you know, I'm just excited about it. Every manager that I talk to uh, that are new in the space or been there for a while, you know, this is a great place for for investors, and it's a great place for people to uh, generate you know outsized returns for themselves and for their LPs. Uh, because it's just growing like crazy. And, and, you know, folks like you and others that come from other, you know, the mainstream kind of VC and private equity world, everybody I talked to in that space is like, yeah, this is great. This is a great space to be in. We're, we're, we're you know, valuations are still really good. We've got companies that are really growing in an absolutely onerous regulatory and taxation regime. You know, every state, every municipality is different and they're, they're and they're still growing. I mean, we're, you know, the industry grew 52 percent last year in a pandemic. I mean, yeah, you know, it, it's a good spot. It's a good spot to be in. Absolutely. Great spot to be in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Cato, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation this morning. This was so fun for me. Um, for our listeners, if they want to get in touch with you or learn more about ways to partner with Loha Capital, is there a, a way they can reach you? Yeah, yeah. The easiest way to reach me is just on LinkedIn. You know, I I check that religiously. Uh, I, I meet a lot of folks through LinkedIn, and so it's just Kato Falan at LinkedIn, and uh, I'd love to you know uh, chat and talk to folks. And you know, I do lots of Zooms all the day, so uh, happy to uh, include people in that. Fantastic. Well, uh, you know, now that folks are getting fully vaccinated, feels like travels opening a little bit back up. So hopefully, we can do uh, an in-person meeting here soon. <laughs> I'm excited. I was excited to meet Colby a couple of weeks ago yeah. in Austin when I was there. That was a great time. Yeah, it was good. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Cato, thanks, thanks so Jordan. much again. Thanks for this. This was a blast. And let's, yeah. let's definitely uh, do another one sometime. Sounds good. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, take care. Take care.